Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Let's get up front of Carl Workadon. I got a bigger, broader question for him. Let's go narrow tomorrow. How do you interpret average hourly earnings within the 47 other measurements of wage growth that are out there? Well, average hourly earnings are telling us that uh, we are not there yet uh, in terms of uh, the Fed being able to declare mission accomplished. Uh, Average hourly earnings running at 4% are still too hot uh, for inflation to be sustainably uh, at uh, a 2% run rate, especially as we look at the core numbers. Uh, And even more important than average hourly earnings is the employment cost index wage and salary component. Uh, that's running at 4.6. It needs to be at 3% or less right. uh, to be consistent with uh, 2% uh, core PCE inflation. So we are simply, you know, there, there's lots of good progress. The glide path is uh, uh, looking in the right direction, uh, but there is still uh, uh, further room to run before we can feel more comfortable. Carl, I've got to go to 60,000 feet here. You're really good at this. Peter Drucker, 1991, on the new productivity. Do we have any clue given our labor data that we're in right now, what the productivity, the efficiency, the efficacy of our labor is. I would suggest we're flying blind. I think we are still flying blind uh, post-pandemic, Tom, and we've seen some wild swings in productivity due to labor shortages and then the rebound in participation. Uh, Lots of uh, uh, kind of wild swing factors are really distorting the numbers. That uh, big surge we saw uh, in GDP growth in Q3, of course, distorts productivity. Uh, That's not the beginning of a trend. That was a one-time flash in the pan. Uh, We can see that in the tracking forecast uh, for Q4. Uh, So there really is still a lot of instability and noise uh, that we have to look through to get a a clearer perspective. Now, uh, what I think does give us some sense of the trend, uh, when we have extended periods of labor scarcity uh, and high labor costs, uh, typically that pushes businesses, encourages them to make the kind of uh, productivity-enhancing capital investments uh, that do lead to a productivity boom. Uh, but we're, you know, we're, we're, we're still uh, not out of the woods yet. Uh, the labor data does look to be uh, moving to a more balanced uh, state where maybe we have less uh, labor cost pressure uh, six months from now, for example. Uh, and then that would say maybe there'll be less of a productivity flare-up than we might be anticipating. Of course, AI is a big wild card, but I think it's a little bit too soon uh, to be factoring that into the macroeconomic data. 
uh, on, on that kind of scale. If you are just joining the program, would you just get a one-two punch, better than expected jobs data with the ADP report coming in hotter than expected and that initial jobless claims coming in lower than expected? You could see an extension in the move with 10-year yields now creeping closer to that 4%, 3.99% if you round up uh, about uh, just a less than one basis point. Carl, how much are you looking at a market that is screaming that we are not going to have any recession anytime soon without some sort of exogenous shock? Well, I think the market signal is very important, but uh, that market signal will be very subject to the macroeconomic data trend. And we are certainly moving to a slower pace of activity than where we were, uh, for instance, in Q3 of last year. So it is a, a slower profile in the first part of this year, which will mean less hiring. Uh, that puts pressure on margins and, uh, and revenue gains and whatnot. If there's slower nominal GDP, then those things uh, tend to slow down uh, as well. Uh, so it'll be a challenging macro environment, which will be uh, an environment in the first half of this year where the macro variables really do drive the narrative as we'll get some clarity on whether it's a bumpy landing, soft landing, no landing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I think we do have to you know, pay very careful attention to that tug of war between what markets are seeing in terms of Fed easing and whatnot uh, and what the macro data are, are suggesting. Are you and as we look at the claims numbers, right, this is consistent uh, with what we said ahead of the data, which is it's not layoffs that are uh, cooling the labor market at the moment. Uh, it's just a reduced appetite for hiring. You mentioned the market signal, Carl, and I think that really follows di nicely onto what we saw yesterday in the meeting minutes. Jay Powell kind of dismissed this idea of financial conditions in the December FOMC meeting, and then he inserted that back in, at, or somebody did, in the meeting minutes where suddenly they're worried about this easing in financial conditions. Do you think that basically the, it, the implied rate cuts that we have seen priced into the market through the end of last year have made it more difficult to really achieve that price stability in a way that we see with ongoing labor market strength? I think that the easing of financial conditions, which is pretty substantial, our own BMP financial conditions index uh, would say that uh, you know, the moves from the highs are equivalent to maybe 100 basis points of Fed cuts. Uh, that complicates the uh, exit process. Now, the Fed knows full well that when they shift from uh, you know, the risk of uh, there being more hikes to uh, either being on perma hold or moving to a lower uh, policy rate, that there's always going to be that kind of easing of financial conditions uh, that takes place. But absolutely, this does complicate the process. We heard that in the minutes, uh, the line that said, you know, the easing of financial conditions, you know, the scope or the magnitude of it uh, could jeopardize the Fed's uh, path. If we have a, a real reacceleration in the economy, then that, that last mile in the inflation fight uh, becomes uh, more difficult and that's going to slow down uh, the Fed in that process. What I thought was interesting uh, in the minutes was the, uh, you know, the, usually the Fed has the boilerplate language. If it's hotter, we'll go higher. If it's uh, cooler, we'll go lower. Uh, and, and they didn't do that. It was, I think, on page eight of the minutes uh, where they talked about, uh, you know, kind of maybe empty or somewhat empty rhetoric about saying that, you know, there's a possibility of more hikes. Uh, then they went on to say there's a possibility that we could take longer to pivot towards cuts. Um, but they never then added the other side of the scale, which is, and if things are cooler, we could go sooner. Um, so that tells you they're very sensitive to yeah. the market reaction uh, to the December press conference. Carl, the fact that we were all wrong last year and that we got this wonderfully buoyant economy, and right now, uh, John, a 3.8% statistic on the unemployment rate guesstimate for tomorrow. Carl, are we fully employed? I mean, there's a lot of Americans flat on their back. But are we fully employed in America? 
as we look at the aggregate data, right, the unemployment rate below 4%, uh, if we look at the wage trends, uh, I think it's pretty uh, apparent that, uh, that we have been in a period of full employment uh, and, and that uh, largely explains those wage pressures. Now the labor market is cooling, so uh, while, while we may be fully employed uh, now on the eve of the uh, December jobs report, uh, by the middle of the year or later, uh, I think that uh, there could be uh, you know, a, a, a hotter debate about whether we still are uh, at full employment because we will see those wage pressures coming down as the unemployment rate drifts higher. Uh, and uh, that will create some slack, which is a welcome development after the last uh, uh, last two years uh, post-pandemic environment uh, to uh, get us that last mile back to 2%. Uh, of course, full employment is very important, but as uh, Jerome Powell reminds us uh, in nearly every press conference, right, price stability is the bedrock or the foundation of a, a stable economy. So it, you know, we can't just push the unemployment rate as uh, low as we can go uh, without uh, taking into consideration that trade-off uh, with, uh, uh, with the inflation dynamics. And that was actually something that was uh, uh, highlighted in the minutes yesterday as well, where now policymakers are starting to think about the trade-off on the dual mandate. Uh, you know, so there, there's more weighting to both factors on the, on the, on the dual mandate uh, relative to where we were over the last uh, several quarters. Hey, Carl, just quickly, just to recap, expectations tomorrow. What are the numbers for you and the team? Well, I'm eyeing this uh, hissing sound in the labor market. We're gradually losing momentum. So I think 165-ish mm. uh, on the number, which now turns out to be just slightly below uh, the consensus forecast. And I would watch for uh, some slack in the, in the unemployment rate. I actually think uh, maybe a two-tenths increase up to 3.9%. Mm. Uh, with still those persistent wage pressures in the background, keep in mind, inflation is a lagging indicator and so is labor inflation. Carl Riccadonna, appreciate it. Happy New Year, sir. Carl Riccadonna of BMP Paribas. Joining us now, Katie Kaminsky, Chief Research Strategist of Alpha Simplex, punishing that bond market, Katie. You were sure we talked about it, it felt good for a while, then this market turned. Katie, I guess you're still sure after the pain of the last couple of months, and what changed for you? No, um, trend signals have finally turned long, and I think this is an epic signal for the market because we have been short for nine quarters. This has been one of the longest shorts in trend following history over the last 20 to 40 years. And I think this is important because it signals the end of the tightening cycle and it suggests that we're going through a regime change and that we need to start looking at the next phase of the bond market. And for me, that's looking for a steep yield curve. And I'm trying to think about what is going to be the catalyst for that as the next phase of this trade. It's one thing not to be short, Katie. It's another thing to be aggressively long. Where does trend following signal send you? So right now they're still rather muted, but I think the key that we're gonna have to watch is how fast are cuts coming. And I also think we have to be a little bit nervous too. We need to watch what's happening with supply and treasuries to look at the end of the curve to see what's happening there as well as we try to navigate this year as weaker data might come in and as we try to roll over debt throughout the year. So I think this is gonna be a year to watch the shape of the curve and to see where uh, the curve actually settles out. When you talk about a steepening in the yield curve, it can come from two places. It can come from short-term yields coming down in response to Fed rate cuts, or it could come to, uh, from longer-term yields rising aggressively. Are you basically saying because you are no longer short treasuries that you see it more coming from the front end with more aggressive rate cutting cycle than people are expecting? 
Well, that's the trade that everyone's focused on. And I think that's where everyone's focused right now. You were just mentioning it that, you know, we're focused on how soon are cuts coming um, and when are we going to see the, the shorter end of the curve sort of deepen so that we have this this more steep yield curve. I think where you have to worry, the typical thing that would be the challenge is if we start to see more challenging uh effects on the long end of the curve, aka, uh, you know, poor, poor fixed income market on the long end. So that would happen if we had trouble um, in terms of valuations for debt. And so that would happen right. if we had poor, you know, poor auctions in the Treasury market. So that's something I'm going right. to be watching this year. Katie, let's talk to Global Wall Street right now that hangs on your every word on trend based CTA uh, uh, technical analysis. So we had a trend to a higher yield in the 10 year. We've rolled over. The, the indeterminate point I call soup. Are we in a trend of soup now, indeterminate? Or can you state that we have a trend towards lower yield? Is a trend in place of higher prices and lower yield? So we hit the inflection point and we've started moving towards longer, uh, longer signals, especially in most asset classes, particularly equities. Uh, we've also seen um, very strong short signals in the U.S. dollar. So we've really seen that inflation trade that we were seeing for pretty much two years dissipate and move past a point where we're moving towards right. a new trend. You sound like Luis Yamada there talking about dissipation. What will it take to get trend in place where there's a permanence to weak dollar, a permanence to lower yield? I think rate cuts, as expected, would definitely um, continue that trend strongly. Of course, not as weak data if we continue to see this sort of soft landing be a possibility. Um, and I think that is going to be in question, of course, because my general view this year is that we're going to see a lot of variation in outcomes. Um, I want to point out one key fact. A, bond volatility still remains elevated and bond stock correlation still remains positive. Those are two technical factors that are very different than the classic regime. So we need to navigate those first before we can figure out sort of have we moved to sort of back to where we were or are we moving somewhere else? Hey, Katie, let's finish there. We caught up with someone just yesterday from JP Morgan. Lisa mentioned them, Phil Camparelli. He talked about 60-40 being back and that 40 would enable you to play defense. Is there any reason to believe that it is back? Are you seeing anything that suggests that correlation is going back to what some people might call slightly more intuitive? I think everyone wants that. But I think the worry is what I just said. We're seeing very different asset class relationships. So we need to watch inflation and watch for how inflation behaves because inflation changes the nature of asset class relationships. If we should see inflation have upside risk potential, we will see more challenge to that 60-40 narrative. If, in fact, we can keep inflation under control, I agree. The 60-40 is a good place to be. But so watching inflation and keeping that in check, and that's why the Fed is probably being more conservative and being careful um, because they want to make sure that's the case. Katie, appreciate the update. Happy New Year. It's good to catch up. Katie Kaminsky of Alpha Simplex. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Mills joins us. Ed Mills, Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. Ed, you've got a very domestic note today with domestic issues. John Farrell mentions uh, the idea of our foreign wars. Is there a foreign policy stance among Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill? Uh, Tom, they're trying to find that, and I think that they do wrap it from a domestic agenda. Uh, What we're looking at for a January agenda is not just funding the United States government, but it's the national security issues. And so you have the supplemental looming in the background for Israel, for Ukraine, for Taiwan. But Republicans are saying if we're talking about national security, we also have to talk about the border. So that's why Republicans were at the southern border uh, yesterday pushing for those border protections. But the problem for them is that they continue to lose members and they're down to 219. Usually you need 218 to get something through the House. So they have really strong border policies, but right now they don't have the votes. What is the Democrat Party view on a national security issue at the border? Do they agree? Is it a nuance? Do they flat out disagree with Speaker Johnson? So I think it's a little bit nuanced. Uh, In the bill that failed in the Senate in December, there were some border funding provisions. Um, What we have right now is that Democrats uh, understand that they need to do more on the border. There's been negotiations, but they certainly don't want to go as far as House Republicans have been pushing for. Uh, They call it H.R. 2, the Protect the Border Act. Uh, That's real changes to asylum. Uh, That's changes to kind of E-Verify systems in the United States. That's rebuilding the border wall. Uh, Those are a step too far for Democrats. What I think we have to see is that Democrats have to go further than they're comfortable with to get the other provisions. But we are in that period of trying to figure out exactly where that line is. And so we're going to go right up to it and potentially have a government shutdown come January 19th or February 2nd, the two funding deadlines that are approaching very quickly here. That's where I wanted to go, Ed. There seems to be a sort of a subtle shift in the Republican Party moving away from just tying some of the border kinds of security provisions to funding for Ukraine and Israel, to moving it more broadly, to shutting down the government if they don't get what they want. Does that make it so much more likely that we are going to get a government shutdown? It doesn't even matter. It, it's a great question, Lisa. And I think that we're kind of right on that precipice of either grand bargain or bust. 
because um, we probably have to watch what develops in the Senate. Uh, but you do have this sense that Republicans want to fight, that they want to show that they are pushing for border security and want to push for more than what Democrats want. And sometimes by having that shutdown really elevates their point. However, Republicans also want to have the ability to say they got something done that when they run for re-election here in November, that they can point to an accomplishment. And so that's where the grand bargain comes in. There is still a strong desire in DC to support Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan through a defense supplemental. And if you can put that all together, and we have to remember that even if we shut down the government, at some point we're gonna reopen it. So it's just a question of how far and how much drama there is. But at Raymond James, we always do point out that in past government shutdowns, the, on average, the S&P 500's been up by 3.2%. So from a market perspective, um, we kind of tend to discount the fact that the government could shut down because it always <clears throat> reopens. Talking about drama, Donald Trump, we're talking about January 15th, we've got the Iowa caucuses, then we've got New Hampshire on January 23rd, where we have the first primary in the country. How much does it change the calculus if Donald Trump, as expected, wins the primary races uh, in those two states, and we do get the sort of feeling that he, once again, is at the helm very much of the Republican Party? So Lisa, I think at that point, what you would see is that the voice of Donald Trump becomes even more important uh, in congressional fights. Right now, a lot of the times when he uh, sends out a message or, or sets a policy stance, uh, it, it's, it's noticed in D.C., but it's not truly followed. If he reestablishes himself as the head or the de facto head of the Republican Party uh, and looks like it's going to be the nominee, then if he comes out and says, kill this bill, don't vote for this, you have to fight stronger on border security, that makes it much harder for Republicans to cut the deal. Um, and so that's putting pressure to try to do it sooner rather than later. If they can get it done by that January 19th deadline, that is after the Iowa caucuses, but before that momentum could build. Alternatively, if you have someone like a Nikki Haley emerge, I think the markets would start to kind of surge because there is a sense that she is a stronger candidate against Biden, the likely Democratic nominee, uh, and, and it gives a little bit more wiggle room uh, for House Republicans and House uh, or Republicans generally in D.C. to potentially cut that deal. That's the range of outcomes, Ed. You've got to tell me your base case for the next month. What are things yeah, look no, like? The, the, yeah, the base case is drama, brinkmanship. It does seem like we could easily get that government shut down. Um, but from a market perspective, yeah, I tell clients to kind of pay attention to that longer term uh, provision. I do think we will get government funded. We will get a defense supplemental. We will get something on the border. It's just a question of timing, John. Ed, thank you, buddy. Good to catch up. Happy thank New you. Year, sir. Ed Mills there of Raymond James. Steve Trent says American Airlines, American Airlines analyst over at City, is still optimistic, writing this. Premium economy traffic flow, international momentum, and loyalty and co-branded card strength should continue to support network airline revenue. TK, that is the constructive view from Steve and the team. Mr. Trent owns a high ground on this. You do this with the, uh, the grind at Stuyvesant, then on to Pennsylvania. Then you go north into the middle of nowhere where there's no airports talk. And you go, someday at talk, I'm going to be an airline analyst. Trent darkens the door today. Good morning. Great to have you uh, with us here. What's the level of enthusiasm? You have a buy on United. You published that yesterday. 
people think you're nuts on this. How do you have a buy on an industry that seems so beleaguered? No, and thank you for having me and happy new year to you guys. I think I have enthusiasm in spots. Uh, so when we look at what's going on in the space right now, you're really seeing a lot of uh, the economic value uh, going largely to two airlines, <coughs> Delta uh, and United, if we're talking about the United States market. Mm. Um, you can actually extend this thesis to, let's say, Air Canada north of the border, uh, and let's say further down south, Panama's Copa Airlines, uh, where international long haul is doing well. Uh, the network airlines have adapted very well to what I would characterize as the new normal. We have uh, most consumers uh, only in the office three days a week. Uh, that has resulted in a blended travel, let's say, with very good demand indicators uh, for premium economy. Uh, basic economy is a different story. Pure mm -hmm. domestic is also a different story. Okay, you and I were weaned on this, and, and the answer is Robert Crandall changed the business years ago at American Airlines. He sat there and said, we're doing price discrimination and that. What our audience knows is tickets are cheaper now than they were a year ago, two years ago. How do you have a buy in the stocks if they're giving away seats again? So I think there are pieces of the space where we're not optimistic. Uh, we certainly don't have a buy on the whole group. Uh, we're far less sanguine uh, on those domestic-oriented carriers. But when one looks at the uh, supply situation now, uh, if you go back to 2019 and compare domestic capacity versus the U.S. economy, you roughly had $23.20 and 20 some odd cents of economic activity per available seat mile. Uh, go to 2023, we had roughly $28 of economic activity per available seat mile. Um, so uh, capacity has grown. The U.S. economy has grown more. I think the argument we're trying to make uh, is not to buy everything, but to be selective uh, in those network carriers that have very specific attributes, such as very strong uh, loyalty and co-branded card. We think that's helped uh, these carriers to deverse their earnings stream. International long haul. Uh, and this uh, very good setup in terms of their cabin offering, um, blended travel, you know, economy well, plus, that's really been the big mover. How much would oil prices have to rise for you to get less constructive at American? Um, you know, in terms of Delta and United, those are really the two I like. I'm, uh, you know, less sanguine on the others, uh, quite frankly. I think if oil prices rise, it would really depend how they rise. Do you get an oil price rise because there's better global economic activity? I'm not necessarily perturbed by that because you have the likes of uh, Delta, Copa, uh, that can price that in uh, to uh, business travelers and higher-end travelers. If we get an oil price spike that, you know, Crude goes up 20 bucks a barrel overnight. That's a whole different ballgame, uh, which is I don't see anybody predicting. But if we, in that instance, for example, uh, that's actually a tough situation for the group because it's very hard to pivot, maybe unless you're Southwest Airlines uh, and at least temporarily you have a, a large hedge position. At least we've talked about this, the way these airlines are essentially just credit card companies now with airplanes bolted onto them. Who's absolutely nailed their loyalist program when you look across these airlines, these companies? Who's got it nailed down? Delta's uh, really, uh, I think, head and shoulders above most everybody Why else. Why is that, Steve? So if one looks at 
their brand. You know, they were thinking back to those, you know, terrible uh, pandemic days. They were the very last airline to finally unblock that middle seat uh, as consumers were just starting to get comfortable again with sitting next to strangers, even strangers wearing masks. Uh, Delta is the only major U.S. airline uh, that did not dilute its equity holders during the pandemic. No convertible debt offerings, uh, no equity offerings. No seats in their lounge. Bramo about fell off her chair there when you're talking up Delta. Well, Give us an anecdote on Delta, Lisa. No, I mean, listen, let's get the smallest violin possible out. But I'm <laughs> just thinking, you know, of all of the massive lines outside the Delta lounge with people bringing their American Express card and pulling it out and saying, but I'm the real guy. I mean, how much is this really going <laughs> to diminish the people who are loyal flyers? You know what? And that's actually a, a hallmark of success right there. So if you look Is at it? the, you know, the loyalty program revenue, they did $4.1 billion uh, in 2021. They did five and a half some odd billion That's in 2022. Amazing. They're probably going to close in on $7 billion. They're going to, I think the print for 4Q is on, on January 12th or thereabouts. Um, so that trajectory and what they're doing on the co-branded card, mm-hmm. they have such a good brand. Uh, and for any large bank, they're probably the best counterparty and get very good economics on, on, on this program. Fast forward five years from now, how much of the revenue of a Delta is going to come from the card effort? Yes, I think if one looks at the pure economics of it versus just the stuff that runs through the income statement, sort of two different uh, pieces of flow there, uh, I think that you, know, you could have something conceivably five years from now uh, that's a good, you know, 10 to 15% higher than it is today, which on the surface doesn't sound like that big a deal. Uh, But when one thinks about what kind of margins you get on co-branded card revenue, uh, you know, versus main cabin passenger revenue, you know, the mixed impact is big. Uh, You know, the de-risk of the earnings stream is is also significant. you know, so once again, I'm not constructive on any every single U.S. airline. Sure. There are two I really like, and then I'm less sanguine on most of the rest. I can tell you the loyalist programs, the actual loyalists, Tom, hate this. The people who actually fly on the planes, they hate it because they believe that if you can acquire the same status just by spending on a credit card, it's just a cheat code. It's not the same as actually being a loyalist and flying every single day on the planes. I know you're one of them. I know well, a lot of people following this program at I'm home mixed. are the same as well. I'm mixed because on one hand, it's a democratization of a very <laughs> otherwise uh, sort of gross system where some people are <laughs> preferred do. and that you know are allowed in first and you're better and this and that. Like it's sort of this, it's sort of a, a social experiment when you go to the airport and people start getting well, angry and start you know lining your- up and pushing. Each other. To your good point, I had a round trip recently where there was not a single available seat in the lounge, both ways as well. Steve Tron, I've got to talk to you about the dangers that are out there. All of us were just foundationally shaken by what we saw at Haneda in Tokyo here in the last couple of days. I think of Kaivon Rumert Cowan, your great colleague here in the aerospace and airline game, and the dangers that are out there. Kai lived it decades ago as well on an ugly flight. How safe are our runways, with all of your knowledge, all of your intake, how safe are the runways of American airports? Yeah, great question. And, and my heart goes out to you know, the, the folks over in Japan, not just for uh, uh, the, the, the plane accident, but the earthquake itself. Um, when one looks at the system in the United States, uh, we have very strict rules here. Um, very strict rules on air traffic limitations. 
on how many air traffic movements uh, each controller is supposed to monitor. Um, so I don't have big concerns about the safety. There are definitely uh, bottlenecks out there in terms of the supply of air traffic controllers. Um, and there are arguments that, you know, U.S. air traffic system to some extent is, is antiquated. Um, you know, that being said, how have uh, officials responded to it? Um, they have forced the industry to reduce air traffic movements mm -hmm. in some places. So I think that's uh, unfortunate for the consumer on some levels. Uh, but I'm happy to see them doing that in terms of, you know, safety first. Yeah. Steve, this was great to catch up. Thank you, sir. It's good to see you. Happy Thank New you. Year. You Steve too. Trent there of City. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's get to it right now. Sarah Hewen joining us. And this is something John Farrow has not forgotten about, I have, and that is Europe, ahead of Europe and America's research at Standard Charter. I want to digress here, Sarah, away from the U.S. economic data we're going to see. We haven't even addressed at the beginning of the year the challenges of Christine Lagarde. How are her inflation challenges different than those of Jerome Powell? sure that there, there are too many differences in terms of the challenges because in both cases you have a strong labour market and um, the, the question is you know, are the, is the Fed the ECB, are they taking a different approach to those strong labour markets? We had a very, very clear message from Christine Lagarde at the last ECB meeting that domestic inflation pressures were the concern, that uh, full employment and ongoing labour market pressures were a concern and that, that's why the ECB right. is cautious, why they're not talking about rate cuts. Um, the Fed's view seems to be, uh, you know, we, we're, we're getting a soft landing, inflation is coming down, uh, we're not too concerned about um, labour market strength. But I would note what, what happens to wage growth tomorrow. Uh, we saw for the November payrolls right. report, Avjali earnings up stronger than expected. So that could be right. a concern going forward. Well, let's go right there because that was, I thought, the high point of your research note. On wage growth, you take average hourly earnings, AHE, I bring it over to ECI, which is wages and benefits. What's the efficacy of AHE for you tomorrow at 8.30? 
I think that, I mean, we, we, we are expecting a slowdown, to be fair. We think that we'll see a softer monthly growth, but uh, that's against a backdrop of last time around, um, higher year-on-year, year, um, higher monthly, higher on a three-month and six-month annualised, all the sorts of measures that the Fed likes to, to look at. Um, and the reason why I think it is still very much worth taking account of what's going on there is because the disinflation forces that have weighed on inflation to date, uh, goods inflation, imported inflation, commodity prices, uh, we're starting to see those reverse now. We're seeing a pickup in commodity prices. Obviously, geopolitical factors are behind that. Higher freight costs, a real jump in freight costs um, when we've got used to seeing them really flatlining over the past year or so. Um, and what central bankers will be concerned about is that you haven't brought your core inflation down um, far enough before the benefit from uh, weaker energy and food prices starts to reverse and your headline inflation catches up and, and starts to take over. Uh, take over. So the um, wage earnings section is very important, not just for the Fed, but also for the ECB. But I would say at the moment, central bankers are taking a slightly different slant on what's going on and the, the, those fundamental drivers of domestic inflation pressures. With that in mind, Sarah, when you compare and contrast, you and a team, the differences between the ECB and the Federal Reserve, how different are the thresholds for rate cuts? Who goes first? What have you penciled in for 2024? Well, we do have the ECB going first. We think that they'll cut by the second quarter. Um, they're shrugging aside weakness in the economy, but we think that that is going to become more of a factor. Obviously, inflation this time around for December is likely to nudge higher year on year because of base effects. But the broad trend is um, is moving in the right direction. And ultimately, we think that um, by the but uh, by the second quarter, by the, the the next set of forecasts that we get, I guess, for June, they, they will be signalling clearly that there will be uh, inflation on target over their time horizon. Um, possibly they get there a little bit earlier, but we do see a sort of more cautious approach from ECB. So we think second quarter rate cuts. For the Fed, we've, we've got the third quarter uh, factored in. But I have to say that the commentary that we had at the last FOMC seemed to be giving greater emphasis to um, the uh, perhaps the underlying growth of the economy and potentially the need to not over-tighten or not hold rates too high for too long, um, which could suggest um, that they, they move earlier than the third quarter. Obviously, markets are expecting um, the that they could move as soon as uh, the, the next uh, the next couple of months. We think that that will be too soon. The minutes I suggest were more cautious than maybe the um, than Powell's commentary after the last FOMC meeting. That tug of war between market expectations and communication from the Fed continues. Sarah, great to catch up. Happy New Year, Sarah. Hugh in there. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.